0: Good morning. Welcome to Veritas. So, a couple quick things because we're going to be digging into a really deep topic this morning. Um, We're halfway through our sermon series called Redemption Songs. Um, It's a sermon series where we're looking deeply into God's unrelenting pursuit of sinners. We got to see the story unfold through Jonah over the past month of God's pursuit, his radical pursuit of a sinful city of Nineveh and a sinful prophet in Jonah. His unrelenting desire to chase after her in grace and bring sinners back to himself. And so I know so many of us were just moved and, and, and challenged and provoked by that grace of God. And so this morning we're actually going to take a very different turn in a way. And we're going to see in the book of Nahum the continuation of this story in God's pursuit of sinners as he brings about the destruction of the city of Nineveh. He brings about his wrath on sin. And so this is going to be a very weighty morning. Um, The book of Nineveh was written about about 100 years after what we read happened in Jonah. About a hundred years after the city of Nineveh repented, we have the book of Nahum come. And it's after all those who turned to God have died off and the city of Nineveh had returned to evil and violence, oppressing other nations and oppressing the people of God, that God speaks to the prophet of Nahum and declares that his wrath is going to come and it's going to undo the sin and the violence that's threatening to destroy his people. And so we're going to see how comforting the wrath of God can be when he will stop at nothing to deliver us from the sin that seeks to destroy us. Now honestly Nahum's not really a book that we ever read or hear much about. I mean when was the last time that you were were hearing someone say, you know I I was having a quiet time the other day and And in in, in my time in Nahum, I really felt God saying, or when was the last time anybody ever came to you and said, you know, I was praying for you the other day, and God brought to my heart this verse from Nahum. In fact, if they ever do that, you should be really, really worried, (laughs) as you're going to find out. But the radical fact is that in three short chapters, this book describes the indescribable. It describes the wrath of a holy God against sin and those who oppose him. And so I'm walking into this text very humbly. I'm walking into this text feeling completely incapable for the task. But it's my prayer that we're gonna actually begin to see the beauty and the fullness of God's nature. That we'll see his wrath along with his grace and his mercy and that it would be an incredible comfort to us. Because the thing that I hope to save us from is what we often do is we domesticate God. We want to make him into this acceptable, understandable pet that we can carry around in our backpack. We want to make him into this God that we're comfortable with. But I want to humbly trust that if we are willing to see God as he reveals himself to us, they'll realize that actually a God that refuses to be domesticated, a God who is frightening at times, is actually incredibly good for us. And so the nature of God, and particularly his wrath on sin, is a really difficult topic. And as I was praying for us and all the people across both campuses for how we need to hear this and how we need to be transformed by this truth, I felt like God was bringing up the fact that there's really six very different types of people, six very different Kind of people um, at Veritas hearing the sermon. And those six different types of people all need to hear a sermon on God's wrath, but need to hear it in six very different tones. And in God's grace, we're going to have six things that are really hopefully going to move them in different ways. And so, first off, there's some of you who have been wronged and hurt in terrible ways. Some of you have been raped, some of you have been abused throughout your childhood. Some of you have had incredible evil done to you. And as I speak right now, people who have done that evil to you are walking around free. And you need to hear and be comforted by the radical justice of a God who hates sin and know that there is no sin that will go unpunished. Every sin that's ever been done will be revealed, and whoever's oppressed you and wronged you will either bear the wrath or Christ will have borne it in their place. There's others here that grew up in, in what you might call fundamentalist churches. You know, you've heard a lot about the wrath of God throughout all your time in church, but really it's been nothing more than a scare tactic to you to get you to live a more moral and good life. Wrath of God's been a means of manipulating you to just behave and be better. And what you actually need to hear is that what you've been encountering isn't really the wrath of God because you can never be good enough to merit God's favor. You can never be good enough to stand apart from God's wrath. There's others here that are quite the opposite. They grew up in churches where all they ever heard about was that God was some benevolent grandpa on the sky. You know, you've clung to verses about God is love. God is, is all love and accepting, which he is. But here's the terrible thing that you need to realize is that that isn't enough, that you actually don't understand how loving God is. Because you cannot love something without at the same time hating whatever seeks to destroy what you love. You can't actually love something without hating whatever destroys the object of your love. Parents in this room are going to understand that passionately. And so God's love is actually much more than you ever imagine. Fourth, and and, and this this is... a challenge here because there's some of you that are really actually here for your first time ever you're just checking out jesus you're just checking out christianity you're just starting to to see what is all this about and the fact that there's a pastor on stage talking about the wrath of god is about the most ridiculous thing to you in your mind that you can ever imagine in fact you're already trying to ease your way out towards the door but let me beg you to stick with me and hear about this the reality of the wrath of god but to know that that isn't the whole story. Because the God that we've read about for the past four weeks that delights to deliver sinners is the same God we're going to read about this morning. And so let us be a gentle invitation, a gentle call, maybe not so gentle, but a call for you to come and to seek your refuge in God. And the fifth group is maybe probably the most difficult of all. Because there's people here who come here every week who profess Christ, who appear to everyone around you like you are righteous and you have it all together. You know the right answers. You know all the right ways to act. But deep down, you are continually in unrepentant sin. And you're manipulating those around you and you're oppressing those around you who desire for your good to call you out of it. And let me say this I don't have words to describe how horrified you should be at the wrath of God. Because you are one of the few people that Jesus ever screamed at while he walked the earth. Being the hypocrites who refuse to acknowledge their own sin while leading many others into sin. And then finally, and I know there's many as well, that just see the wrath of God as as really a philosophical absurdity. Something that seems so archaic, like I'm talking about Zeus and his lightning bolt. And what you need to really hear is that the wrath of God is incredibly good news and that a God who does not hate sin is no God at all. So with that, um, go ahead and stand with me. And we're going to read our text this morning from Nahum 1. And if you can't find that, let me help you out. It's right between Micah and Habakkuk. I'm sure that helped out. Um, If you're using one of the Bibles that was in front of you, try page uh, 507. Let's read the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither the bloom of Lebanon withers the mountains quake before him the hills melt the earth heaves before him the world and all who dwell in it who can stand before his indignation who can endure the heat of his anger his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him the lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of all the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed by stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you no more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we come to you in the midst of, of, of this true text about you, humbly recognizing that, that we are not able to stand before this. God, I pray that you would move our hearts to to be willing to to cherish you as the God that you reveal yourself to be, to recognize you and your very nature to be good news. And Lord, that we would repent from trying to, to domesticate you to make you fit into our desires. Lord, transform our hearts to love your righteousness, to love your justice and to see amazing hope in our stronghold, in our refuge, Lord. And let us never again be the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys can sit down. So we have this incredibly intense passage on the wrath and fury of God. You know, we see that the, the God's described as being avengeful, as wrathful, that his fury dries up the seas and melts the hills. This is wrath. But there are two huge surprises that we actually have to check out and, 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 and see before the rest of this chapter is going to make much sense. The first thing is that this is the book of Nahum. You might think, well, yeah, I saw the title line. I can read that. But what you might not know is that Nahum means comfort. So the title line of this book literally reads the book of the vision of comfort. And that's incredibly shocking considering what we just read. But we also see in verse 7, after this amazingly shocking description of God's nature and his wrath, we read in verse 7, but the Lord, sorry, the Lord is good. And what sticks out is the fact that there isn't a but in front of it. There isn't a yet, there isn't a however, there's no contradicting statement before this. It's as if Nahum's telling us, all that I described about God's wrath and justice is proof that the Lord is good. Not in contrary to it in any way, but it shows his justice and his righteousness. And so this is good news. God's wrath isn't something that we should be apologizing for or embarrassed by or seek to sweep under the rug. God's wrath is something that should bring us incredible comfort and that should be something that leads us to worship him for being righteous. So how do we get there? Well, first, what is wrath? Is God's wrath like what we think of as our wrath? Is God's wrath just him being overcome with fury and flying off the handle? Is God's wrath just him waiting for anything to set him off that just leads him to just come undone in fury and just start smiting people? Is God's wrath something that he's embarrassed by or that he's ashamed of? Is it something that he's in therapy for, trying to get through and deal with? Well, let me define wrath as God's patient and righteous anger towards sin and his right punishment of rebellious sinners. So how is that good? How is that good of the Lord, as it says in verse 7? How is that comforting like Nahum says it is? Well, think for a moment about what God would be like if he didn't hate sin. What would God be like if he didn't hate sin? So all the worst things that you can imagine, murder, rape, racism, genocide, the worst things that you can imagine, the things that make a fury boil up in you. Now imagine God looking on that with a wink and a smug smile and saying, it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. It's no problem. I mean, you do what makes you happy, right? In fact, if you really love that, just wait till you die, because then you're going to get to come to heaven and you can do that forever. Just the thought of that is nauseating. Just the thought of a God like that to me just is 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 terrible. And we would all rightly look at that and say, that is not God, that's not good, that, that's, that's evil, that's unjust. And so you might think, but that's unjust because, you know, those are, those are all varsity-level sins. Let's talk JV here. Come on, let's talk about the sins that we're comfortable with, the ones that we're acceptable of, the ones, you know, like gossiping and lying, you know, all the things that, that we do, lust stuff that isn't really that bad, that doesn't really hurt anybody. And so imagine then, okay, a God who doesn't care when people spread false things about you, about people you love behind your back. A God that doesn't really care about gossiping and cyberbullying and the depression and the isolation and the suicide that it leads to. A God that just looks at that and says, Man, they can't take a joke. Imagine a God who looks on lust and and sees and, and smiles while a man looks at a woman that God created in his own image for his own glory while a man looks on her and takes her on in his mind as his own possession where he can do things to her that he would never admit to his wife. Imagine a God who looks at the little lies that we tell. You know the lies that we tell because we have to, because we needed to? A God that looks at the lie and says, you know what, you're right, because if you had admitted to that, you might have lost your job. And that's way more important than your integrity. That's way more important than truth. Imagine a God that looks at any sin and turns a blind eye to it that is indifferent to it. Because a God that's indifferent towards sin is really complicit with sin. A God who does not care about our sin is not worthy of our worship. And a God who doesn't hate the sin that we know is in our own lives and that we hate ourselves Even though we try to justify it, we try to make excuses for it, deep down, we hate it and we wish it wasn't true of us. A God that looks on that sin and is indifferent towards us, indifferent towards it, isn't worthy of our worship at all. In fact, we're just describing a God who's way more evil than anyone sitting in this room. And so a God who doesn't hate our sin, and I mean hate all of our sin, from genocide to gossip, from rape to lying, if a God doesn't hate our sin, then he's indifferent to it, and he's not worthy of our worship. He's not good. And a God who's not good is incapable of justice, and a God who's incapable of carrying out justice is not worthy of our worship, because he's no God at all. And so if God is going to be God, then he must hate all sin. And he must hate all sin with all of his wrath. And so let's look again at Nahum and see how he describes this wrath. This wrath, and and, and we're reading here in these first uh, first eight verses, he's not even getting to describe yet what God is doing with Nineveh specifically. He's talking about God's nature in general and his wrath on all sin, on our sin. And so here, verse two. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And so, again, these are some intense words of God's zeal for righteousness, his zeal for justice, his fury towards his enemies and those who oppose him and seek to do harm to his people. And we see him described here as avenging. In other words, he's a God who's going to take things that are wrong and make them right. the original original Avenger. He's a God also described as wrathful, and we can often think of wrathful as being something like us, where, where we're controlled by our anger, where we're controlled by our fury. You know, when we get mad, when something sets us off, basically we become totally under the domination of our anger, and we just fly off the handle, and we become controlled by it. Well, here in this verse describing God, it's actually saying the exact opposite. It's describing one who has total control, total mastery over his anger and only carries out his wrath to accomplish good. So this verse is describing God as one who, who never flies off the handle, who never in his anger or wrath does something and thinks later, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Now, I'm sorry. He never regrets anything he's done. And so he's described as avenging. He's described as wrathful. And we also see something else alluded to here that we can also struggle with. And we struggle with this more when we're the victims of sin than when we're the perpetrator of sin. He describes him as being slow to anger, You see, when we're the the oppressor, we view God's slowness to anger as approval of our actions. When we're the victim, we can very easily struggle and think that God is letting the guilty go unpunished. We say, how long, God, are you going to let these people treat me like this? Are you going to let this happen to me? But he says, I'm slow to anger not because I clear the guilty, but because I'm patient and desiring many to come to repentance, we find out in First Peter. And so God's slowness to anger isn't a clearing of the guilty, but a desiring for the guilty to find their forgiveness somewhere else, as we're going to see. And so next, after that, we see some of the most intense description of his wrath and power in all of the Bible. Continuing on in verse 3, it says, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So his way is in the whirlwind and the storm? That sounds crazy. Something as terrifying and as intense as a hurricane or a tornado. It goes on to, to then say that the clouds are the dust of his feet so you know like when you're walking on a dusty road and you look back and you can see kind of you've kicked up little puffs of dust this is saying when god walks he kicks up hurricanes when god comes before the hills they melt like an ice cube on a blazing hot summer day when god appears and comes before the mountains the most permanent things we can imagine they quake in terror God can rebuke the sea for being wet and it can become a desert. So we see this terror, a description of, of what's unimaginable that culminates in the fact that you just say, the earth heaves. And don't, let me save you from something here, don't try to comfort yourself falsely by saying, well, this is all just symbolic language because actually you're right, it is symbolic language. But we use symbols to describe things that we can't describe in words, things that are greater than what we're describing. And so we appeal to symbols in part to describe in fullness what's even greater. And so you're right, this is symbolic language, but it's describing something much, much worse. And let me also save us from the error of of reading this and thinking, well, this is just the old angry God of the Old Testament. Jesus is my homeboy in the New Testament. Because there's no person in all of Scripture that talks more of God's wrath and of hell than Jesus Christ. God is the same God throughout all of Scripture. And so just like the God of the Old Testament has a fury and a wrath on, on sin... That's still true. But also let me remind you because the God of the New Testament who delights to deliver sinners, we saw over the past month is overjoyed to deliver sinners through the book of Jonah. And we're going to see the same thing again. And so when we read this, realize again that that this isn't just talking about Nineveh, this is talking about us. This is talking about God's wrath on sin in general. God's wrath on our sin. And this gives us a context to actually start to understand what Paul was talking about when in Ephesians he said we were by nature children of wrath. It gives us context to understand a bit what he's talking about in Romans 5 when he says that we were enemies of God. And so after saying that the oceans would dry up, that the mountains would melt away, Nahum asks a very good question. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Who can stand up to this? Jonathan Edwards said in in what's probably the most famous sermon ever on the wrath of God, he said that even if you were 10,000 times more strong than the stoutest devil in hell, it would do you no good. You'd be consumed just the same. And so we see in this, in this passage that God's making it clear that there's no shelter that we could run to. The seas are dried up, so we can't run from, from God's presence as Jonah tried. You can't run for the hills either because they've melted away. The mountains aren't much help because they're quaking and crumbling. The wealth of our neighbors is no help either because Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon are withering. And the earth heaves with all in it. So he's showing us, you have nowhere to go. None of you can stand before this. All of you rightly deserve it. And there's nowhere you can go. Except look in verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. After all we've read, I don't even have words to tell you how good of news that verse is. After all we've read about the intensity of God's fury, seas dried up, hills melting away, mountains crumbling, everything coming undone, after describing the coming Just wrath of God, showing us that there's nowhere else we can run to. God tells us right here in verse 7 that there is one who can stand before his indignation. There is one who can endure his wrath. And there's one that we can find shelter in. So, who can stand before the indignation of God? The Lord. The Lord can stand before the indignation of God. Who can endure the heat of his wrath? The Lord can endure the heat of his wrath. Who can be our shelter from from the storm of God's wrath that's rightfully ours? The Lord is our stronghold. And he knows and loves those who take refuge in him. So, right here is the gospel. In the heart of the book of Nahum, this scary, frightening book about God's wrath, we see the radical reality of his comfort, of his grace. We see the gospel pouring out to us that we have one who can deliver us from the wrath that's rightfully what we deserve. And we see that his desire to destroy sin is in no way at odds from his desire and his joy to deliver sinners. So his righteous and good and just wrath that aches to destroy the sin that longs to destroy us, this good news of his wrath is in no way at odds with his loving, gracious desire to forgive, to love, and to shelter sinners. And so we see that in the reality that in Christ we have one who bore the wrath of God for us, who is our shelter. And so the amazing thing is actually is that far from belittling God's grace, gazing deeply at God's wrath magnifies it. Far from showing this this divine tension of how can these two things be true, it actually shows a beauty Of God's grace. And if you don't quite understand what I mean there, well, think with me. How thankful do you feel for your house, for your shelter on a sunny day when it's 70 degrees? Not really. You take it or leave it. In fact, you'd probably rather be outside. But now, how thankful you are for your shelter when it's pouring down rain in the middle of the night? How thankful are you for your shelter when it's freezing cold? When the storm is raging, when your house is shaking, how thankful are you for your shelter? And so the same way, if Jesus just died to give us a little bit more comfort, then no wonder we really don't care about him. If Jesus died on the cross to just make our lives a little bit better, then who cares? But if Jesus is our stronghold, if Jesus stood in our place taking on all of our sin, taking it on himself, embodying it, and then stood dead sinner before the wrath of God, experiencing in reality all that we read about here in Symbol, if he experienced that on our behalf, enduring the wrath of God so that that which seeks to destroy us could be destroyed and we could be delivered from it. Then if we are seeking our shelter in him, if he is our stronghold, if he is our refuge, then how thankful are we for that? How good of news is that? To know that in Christ we are in a secure stronghold though a war wages That in Christ, someone endured the wrath that was due us so that we might be the recipients of the grace and the joy and the wonder and the comfort that was due him. And so we also see the incredible blessing of what's also said there in verse 7. That not only were we delivered from God's wrath, not only do we have a stronghold to see us through and to bear the weight and bear the punishment for us. But it says God knows those who take refuge in him. God intimately loves and knows those who take refuge in him. And so th- the question for us here is then: are we going to be like Nineveh? Or are we going to be like Judah as we see this story unfold in the book? Are we going to be like those who, those sinners, run into his arms to be a refuge so that he might bear the wrath for us? Or are we going to be like Nineveh and run from him and try and escape what we read described here? And so the beautiful nature of the gospel is this, is that we've all sinned, we've all rebelled, We've rebelled against a loving and good God, and we are deserving of wrath. As Ephesians 2 says, we are children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. So that we were the ones that stood exposed and deserved this, God came to be our shelter from God. So listen to this, the only refuge from God's wrath is in God. The only hope we have of being delivered from what we deserve and experiencing the grace and life that we don't deserve is in God. And so the the reality is that how we feel about the wrath of God is going to depend greatly on what side of the stronghold we're on. If we run into the stronghold of Christ then we see the wrath of God that seeks to destroy the sin that destroys us as incredible comfort, as incredible grace. But if we run from that stronghold, then we're going to see it as a terror. To put it another way, how how we feel about God's might and his power is going to depend greatly as if you're running into his open arms to be embraced or if you're running from his outstretched arms, trying to escape judgment. And so the invitation is here. How is this book of comfort? Well, when you're in danger, there's nothing more comforting than strong arms embracing you. And when you're in, in danger of the weather, of the war, nothing's more comforting than a strong, stronghold to deliver and see you through. And so that's what we're gonna see unpacked. And so my, my invitation, my call, my beg is that you would run and find your refuge in Christ, that you would run to Christ to find your stronghold, that you would no longer look at God's wrath as something that you hate, but that you would look at his justice and his wrath on sin as something you beautifully desire to worship. Because his justice and his desire to destroy sin is not at all at odds with his joy to deliver sinners. And in fact, on the cross, we see them both married together in a beautiful picture. On the cross, we see Jesus, our stronghold, bearing our sin, being destroyed on our behalf. So that we who are in him, who are trusting in him, might experience grace upon grace upon grace of love from a God who knows us and who desires for us to find our refuge in him. And so if this is your first time here hearing this, I just pray and I call you, I encourage you to come forward, to come get prayer in the side over here, to come and just say, I desire to find my shelter in Christ because there's nowhere else I can have it. Or if this is the 10,000th time you've heard it, I urge you to keep running to cling to his grace and find incredible joy that he desires to deliver you from his wrath because we're going to be one of two people we're either going to be running to his shelter or from it and as we read in verse 9 when we run from it we're plotting against the Lord you might think I'm not plotting against the Lord that's ridiculous When you plot against the Lord is simply when you belittle your sin, when you excuse it, when you give it license, when you justify yourself before other people, when you say, you know what, it wasn't that bad, or I'm not gossiping I'm just venting. Or, well, she deserved it, he deserved it. When you seek to deceive others and lead them into sin. When as a young man, you're pressuring your girlfriend to sleeping with you saying, we're married in God's eyes. You're plotting against the Lord. And you desperately need to run to a God who desires to welcome you into a stronghold and be a refuge for you from his wrath. Let's pray. Father, we, um wow. Wow. I pray, Lord, that this sermon, though intense, would just point us to have a glimpse of you and the beauty of your nature. Lord, that we would repent from trying to domesticate you to make you something acceptable, something that we can handle. Lord, that we would trust in you with a humble passion, delighting in the fact that you hate sin that you hate it and that one day you're going to deliver us from it and that you sent jesus your son to be our refuge to be our shelter to bear your wrath to bear it in completion on our behalf so that we can delight in your grace and the knowledge and the love that you have for us lord bring us life bring us joy let us see the wonder of your grace And God, I pray, Lord, that you would move many of our hearts, Lord, to repent deeply, to trust in you, to simply come to you calling out, I desire to be finding my refuge in you. Lord, make me never the same again. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.